you're listening to the Degrees of Freedom podcast. Conversations about higher education in the 21st century between students and teachers. Produced at the University of Groningen. Hello, my name is Sally Ainsworth. And I am Tasso Sarampalis. This is the Degrees of Freedom podcast where we focus on higher education, the craft of university teaching, and take the perspective of students and teachers. Today, we'll look at the lecture, mainstay of university education since their first appearance almost a thousand years ago, and of course in recent days, lightning rod of a lot of criticism and disdain. Are lectures really an outdated format and should we get rid of them? Can we transform them to meet the needs of 21st century higher education? And how can teachers and students approach them to make the most of them? To help us explore these questions, we're very lucky to have Simon Daly here with us today, lecturer in social psychology and known in our department to be a devoted and experienced teacher and lecturer. Simon, welcome to Degrees of Freedom. Thanks, Tassos. Uh, nice to meet you, Sally. I'm happy to be here to talk about lectures and uh, how effective they are or... Or not. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, before we start talking about lectures, tell us a little bit about what brought you to Groningen, what you do here, what your journey in academia has been um, in the past, what, 20 years? I think it's a bit longer than that, unfortunately. Let's, let's say 20 years. Yeah, my journey in education started, or my journey in teaching started in 1993 at the University of Luton. I was a, a lecturer in sports science. I had a master's, but I always had a hunger to uh, uh, get more qualified and I wanted to do a PhD and after a few years I met a professor from the University of Groningen who invited me over to do a PhD so I came over I began that in 2005 and after completing the PhD I was offered a teaching opportunity here and uh, I took it up and here I am. Why did you decide to take this teaching opportunity? I know that this isn't necessarily the the first career path that people have in, in higher education or in universities. Why teaching? I tend to enjoy teaching more than I do research. I do a little bit of research, but I like the balance, what I've, what I've got right now. I, I enjoy talking with students. I enjoy uh, discussing issues in psychology with them. And uh, I, I enjoy the whole process of teaching in higher education, more so than research. Do you primarily teach lectures or do you also teach smaller groups? Uh, I do a bit of both. Uh, I lecture to large groups of 300 plus, mm -hmm. that's introduction to research methods, but I also take a number of, I'm also involved in small group teaching. Uh, they both have particular and different demands on uh, my teaching skills, but I, I enjoy both. So let's talk about lectures. You've been involved in coordinating courses, setting up lectures, delivering lectures, I presume not just lectures that you deliver, but also lectures that other people eventually take over, courses that other people take over. Um, is the lecture an outdated format? That's a, a really good question, but I think we've got to decide upon what we mean by a lecture. So let's maybe start with this. What What is the traditional conceptualization of a lecture. Let's start with what often you will see in discussions and in the literature talked about as the traditional lecture. Well, I see the traditional lecture as kind of one long monologue. That, as you said earlier, is 
a thousand years old and where the lecturer comes up speaks from his notes or her notes and the saying is uh, there's a, a criticism of that type of uh, lecturing where it, a lecture is defined as uh, where notes pass from the notes of the lecturer to the notes of the student without passing through the mind of either. So that's the kind of context for the traditional lecture. It's very passive and it's a monologue from the teacher and therefore very teacher-centred. That's how I'd see the traditional definition of a lecture. What do you think? I hear what you say about the traditional format as being a teacher-centric mode of um, education focused on the experience and the knowledge of the, let's call them the professor or the, the expert in their field. And I use the, the pronoun there, but in traditional terms, that would be a fairly affluent, middle-aged, middle-class white male. But I find it interesting that you talk about the lecture as being a passive mode of teaching. And this is actually something I wanted to explore. What do we mean by passive mode of learning or teaching? Well, or how do you see that? Well, in the traditional sense, I see the student as passive. They're just recipients, recipients of information from the lecturer. There's very little activity going on other than taking of notes. That's how I see lecturing in the traditional sense. And I've got to say, very few people do it. I, I think what you, when you read the literature, that's what a lot of criticism comes about for the, for the lecture. It's criticism focused on the traditional concept of the lecture. Well, in actual fact, in my experience, lecturing is not like that anymore. Sally, what's your experience? I think it really depends on the lecturer. Um, there are definitely people that follow that more traditional model more closely than others. But I do appreciate it a lot when a lecturer incorporates at least some interaction or something that gets people having a discussion. Do you think of yourself as a, or do you often find yourself um, being passive audience, even when it's a monologue, even when there is no discussion? Is this how you see the the participation of, let's say, a, an audience member or a student? I think it's definitely easy to become passive if no one is actively asking you a question, because it's, it's difficult to volunteer yourself in front of so many people, uh, if it is a large lecture, to either ask or answer a question from a lecturer. And it's not the same as a small group discussion where it's more like a conversation. Instead, you're, you're in the spotlight if you do interact. So it is certainly more difficult to not be passive. What would you call the purpose of a lecture then? So maybe it helps to take a step back and think about the aims of the activity, the aims of a lecture. What would be the point? The traditional lecture or the modern day lecture? Well, the lecture is the lecture. I think as a format, its its structure is universal, even in the modern or more traditional setup. It is typically one speaker, large audience, largely one directional. Some interaction is possible or some interaction is likely, but still the general format of a lecture is, I think, universal. Yeah, I think... The purpose of the, the lecture is, in no particular order, is to get an idea of an, an expert's perspective. And I think that's 
particularly important where students can get a sense of this expert view and how these experts can model a particular critic critique of psychology, a particular theory or a particular practical application. So you would say, I suppose, then the transmission of information, the one directional transmission of expert knowledge. Yeah, mostly. And it, it serves the purpose sometimes of giving an overview. So, for example, in historical psychology, I suppose, you know, what you're looking for is like a long critical narrative delivered by the lecture, but you've still got that component where it's more or less one way. And you said in no particular purpose, you started with that. What other reasons do we have for having lectures? Well, I think there is some knowledge and skills, mostly knowledge. Purposes of the lecture, it's a transmission of knowledge. But I also think there are some social aspects of a lecture where students get in the university experience building community and belonging. I think those are important aspects as well of a, as a large lecture. I think it's perhaps not very difficult to see why the lecture is such a mainstay in higher education. The amount of time that we have for experts to be in front of an audience is to a certain degree limited or to a large extent limited. And experts are a very efficient way of transmitting information. If, uh, if we go with the first purpose that you describe, which is to transmit expert information to the students, then it's not a surprise that the lecture is such a popular format in higher education. But then these secondary or these additional goals that we try to put onto the lecture indeed don't seem to be very fitting to that kind of large-scale format, this, um, this building of skills, perhaps critical thinking skills, professional skills, discussion skills, but also the sense of community that you describe, even though the lecture serves some of these purposes because it creates structure, it brings people together in a, in a physical uh, format. Perhaps, indeed, it doesn't serve those goals very well. Well, I think it serves some of those goals well. I think uh, what you should be doing is combining the lecture with other forms of pedagogy. The lecture serves some functions. It gives you a view of an expert's perspective who can give you some particular insight and viewpoint of a particular theory or problem in psychology. They can also transfer you a contemporary perspective of that particular problem. So in that sense, I think the lecture can serve an important function, but it's only part of a series of pedagogies that the university should deliver. So for example, critical thinking, no, you can't, it's very difficult to have a critical discussion in a lecture. That's more, more likely to be achieved in a small discussion group. So my answer is, lectures combined with other aspects of pedagogy. I think also lectures are better at clarifying the literature and expanding upon the literature yeah. than you would see in a smaller discussion because you're focusing on the expert, you're not, there's less distractions, so it's easier to take notes. And the most important part of a lecture for me is that it doesn't just regurgitate the literature it adds to it in some way. So, yeah, being able to focus on that expert and what they bring to the course literature, I think is something you don't get in smaller group discussions. 
So then what I hear from both of you, it isn't so much that the lecture is an outdated format, it's that we have put too much importance. We have over-relied on it and to the detriment of other formats. We have taken a variety of educational goals and tried to fit them all into one format. I totally agree with that, Tassos. And they've been saying that for a long time. When you read the literature on the critique of lectures, they always quote Bly from 1971. And he was saying exactly the same in 1971. And he was also saying what you need to do is in, include problems, include visuals, include activities, even then in 1971. I love that you mentioned this. It's in my notes um, to give some context also to our audience. Um, Donald Bly uh, wrote a seminal book called What's the Use of Lectures, published first in 1971, as you said, uh, in which uh, he begins essentially with a meta-analysis of all the evidence, actually begins even before the meta-analysis by looking at what lecturers think the, the point of a lecture is, what their personal goals with a lecture are. And there he distinguishes between three overarching goals, the transmission of information, the change of attitudes, and the building of skills, critical thinking skills, etc., or imparting a certain degree of enthusiasm. And his meta-analysis very simply can be summarized as showing that the lecture is a very is is a decent way of transmitting information. It's as good as a lot of other methods, including books and other such methods. But um, they're not especially good, or the evidence isn't very strong on showing that change of attitudes or the teaching of critical skills is uh, very successful through them. And you're right, it's a, it's a great book. We're going to link to it in the description of the podcast. But since you mentioned Bly, let me jump to one of a much later question that I had for you. What literature do you recommend to a, to a new and uh, perhaps an old lecturer? Somebody who is interested in staying with the format of lectures, but improving it to serve multiple goals and to uh, improve the effectiveness of the primary goals. Yeah, a particularly important book for me was is by Ambrose called How Learning Works, and it covers the cognitive perspectives of, of learning, talks about self-regulation, and I think it's a really provides a fundamental uh, basis of knowledge for new lecturers entering the prof profession. And this is specifically about lectures or in general about university teaching? In general about university teaching. I will also recommend the uh, craft of university teaching. I forget the author of the of the book at the moment, but we will also link to that in the notes of the podcast. So, Simon, how do you typically prepare for a new lecture? I tend to over prepare. <laughs> if if Stacy, my wife, she would say I definitely over prepare. Uh, I spend a long time for each lecture, and uh, it's, the process starts by first looking at the course literature and using the basic concepts to, to build a lecture because I don't want to rehash what's in the course literature to the students, first of all. Following on from that, I will, based on the course literature, I'll always start with learning outcomes. I think those are essential to guide the structure of the lecture and I always point to those. I always make those salient to students to say, OK, this is what you need to know by then this lecture through the reading and through the lecture. If you don't know what they are, please contact me. So it starts off with the learning outcomes. And then that provides structure to how I deliver the course. And 
in terms of what happens in the lecture, I will first of all connect the lecture to the previous one, maybe start off by asking some questions, setting the scene for what's to come, activating prior learning, etc. And then I'll talk for about 15 minutes, maybe have some activity, review, talk again for 15 minutes, and ideally that's what I'd like to do. And then at the end, I'll return to the learning outcomes, review it. Hopefully, if I've got time, address any concerns and make myself available through the internet to students if they want to ask any questions. Let me throw a similar question back at you, Sally. How do you prepare for lectures as a student? I often don't do what I'm supposed to do, which is uh, <laughs> every teacher tells you to read the, the literature before the lecture but I actually prefer to do it the other way around because I think a book is quite dry to go into usually, especially if it's in a topic you don't particularly enjoy. So if you've already watched the lecture, you go in with background knowledge and it's much easier to read. You can remember things from the lecture and uh, apply them to what's in the book. So a lot of the time I just go into a lecture completely blind. <laughs> Simon, is, is it true that you would prefer your students to read the literature before coming to the lecture? Ideally, I would like them to because <laughs> it's okay, so I'll hold it against you. But ideally, it's, it's much easier to learn if you've got some basis to hang on this new information that's going to come at you. I think that's really important. And I think what we're, what we're going to talk about now is the biggest challenge of, of lecturing. We're only in contact with students two hours a week really what we should be ensuring is that they've got something to do beyond that. How can we influence to influence students to study outside of that face-to-face -face contact time? And part of that is preparing for the next lecture, and part of that is reviewing the lecture notes, reviewing what they've learned. But that, that's the biggest challenge for lecturers, I think. So I like that you say this, Simon, because one of the things that I've always emphasised whenever I've spoken about university teaching is that there's a misconception that teaching happens when a teacher arrives in a classroom or a student arrives in a classroom. Um, if the way I conceptualize teaching, including lecturing, is that the, the contact time between teacher and student is a minority of the teaching time. There's pre-class time, whether it's lecture or tutorial or workshop, whatever, and there's post-class time. And these two time spans, for me, take the majority of the teaching time. How do you prepare students for understanding, accepting, and working with the learning objectives, which I really appreciate that you mentioned as the starting point of preparing for a lecture? How do you give them material to slowly um, engage with this content? Um, how do you give them impetus to prepare for being in a lecture or for being in a tutorial or a classroom or a workshop, whatever it may be, but including lectures. I think this is something that is forgotten. Then there's the lecture time, which may include interaction, may include monologues, may include activities and all of this. And then there's the post-classroom time, which may include reading the literature, Sally, which is what you do. And in fact, I'll Perhaps I'll, uh, I'll give you some, uh, some happiness here, Sally, by saying that I, in fact, most of the times don't assume that students read 
the required literature before coming to a lecture. I think that's I, best to assume. <laughs> I think it's necessary to assume because even though um, many uh, may take the opportunity to, to, to read some of the material beforehand or maybe even all of the material beforehand, I know for a fact that it doesn't happen for everybody and I need to be able to address a, a, a full audience, not just the individuals who have done the activities that I would wish them to or that are ideal for them to do. Well, I, I agree completely with what you're saying, the preparation, and that's also an issue with the flipped classroom. It is an excellent learning tool, but it works most effectively when the students are prepared, and quite often they're not. So running a flipped classroom, you need to guarantee, ensure that students are prepared. More often than not, they aren't. We talked in the beginning of this, the introduction in this podcast, that we take the perspective of students and, and teachers. Let me take the perspective of a student here, or at least try to take the perspective of a student here, and hopefully it's either approaching correct or I'll be corrected if it's not. Why should a student come prepared to a lecture if there is no incentive for them to be prepared with the material? Why should they read a certain uh, literature if it isn't addressed explicitly, if there is no usefulness in this preparation during the classroom activity or the classroom environment? Well, I think, first of all, the onus is on the lecturer to kind of provide the justification for why it's important to come prepared. It's a much more enjoyable learning experience, and if you've got activities, those activities will make sense. So then you provide usefulness for this knowledge that or this, this the reading the advanced reading during the the classrooms and i think uh, in a in a typical lecture in the lecture that we're most of us are used to there is no incentive to being prepared or to having read the literature so it's a bit of a circle in that respect that we assume perhaps that the reading hasn't happened so then we create lectures with that assumption, and we reinforce that behavior too. Yeah, I would agree, we reinforce that behavior, but if you've got an interactive lecture, you say you've got a snowball exercise, you've got a group activity going on in that lecture, some students will feel uncomfortable, they may find it difficult to complete that activity, and sometimes it's important to point out, to say, okay, if you're having difficulty, you know, you would enjoy this activity much more, and you'd learn much more. By, by preparing, so you create a connection between preparation and learning within the lecture and benefiting from that. All right, what's a snowball activity, Simon? Well, for example, I'll ask a question and then I'll get a student to think about the answer, talk to the person next to them, so there's, and then they'll talk to the person next and so it builds up into a group. And then I'll ask a group of students what I, I will either place the answer ask groups of students to contribute. I like the idea of that, but I have a feeling that in practice you would end up with the most confident person in the group speaking for everyone else. It is a risk, but I usually get different when I do that activity. I get a variety of people responding. I think the key to good lecturing is to create a safe environment yep. and make it explicit that you know, I like students to respond and uh, I won't tend to put them on the spot. It can feel safe, etc. to take those intellectual risks. Yeah, because I asked um, students what they like 
best about interaction in lectures and what they dislike about it. And what the majority of them said is that they dislike either answering or asking questions directly to the lecturer, either because there's less time for it to develop into a full discussion, so it's kind of rushed, or because it puts them on the spot and they're embarrassed. So something like a snowball activity could be a way to uh, mitigate that and have smaller discussion first, and then after conferring, yeah. So do you, do you find that that works better than just blank asking someone to their face? Yeah, I would never point someone out and say sorry, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, I think that's uh, not a very good thing to do, actually putting them on the spot. Mm-hmm. And quite often I'll get students to think about it in the groups and I'll put the answer up myself, right? But I think the key thing, if you manage to create an atmosphere where students are unafraid to take those intellectual risks, which is possible, then students will be, become more motivated, become involved. It's difficult, I can see that. You talked about interaction, about the fact that it can be uncomfortable, the fact that it can be useful. In what way would you say that interaction is useful in a lecture? And I want something explicit here. I want to know exactly what kind of learning goals the interaction supports in this case. The interaction can form a dialogue. In a dialogue, I can find out what that student's understanding is, or that group of students' understanding. I can find out where they are. I can judge my own impact on, do I have to increase the complexity of my arguments of my lecture, or do I have to decrease the complexity of my argument? So I can use it as a monitor to judge my own effectiveness to whether I'm moving towards those learning goals. If I understand correctly, in this particular case, you're talking about interaction as being a helpful way to gauge whether you, as a teacher and students, as the audience or the uh, learners, have reached the learning goals that you had aimed at for that particular stage of your lecture. But that's not active learning per se. That's not adding to the, well, it's, it's not adding to how active student participation is. Is that what I understand in this particular case? I don't understand the question. I see that as active learning. So then, what is active learning? This is something that has perplexed me for a very long time. What do we think of when we talk about active learning? Well, students are evaluating and judging and thinking about maybe some critical thoughts about a topic. That's how the question or the activity will be addressed. What do you understand by active learning at this stage? I think of active learning as a student's engagement with the material that they interact with, that they're meant to be learning, opportunities for them to ask themselves question, uh, questions, to consider how well they understand material, to see what kind of implications this material may have. Uh, to gauge for themselves whether they have reached those learning goals, to interact with, actually maybe for me the the best definition of active learning is to have uh, a personal goal as a student and then on a regular basis gauge how, how much closer you've come to it. So don't you think a dialogue can achieve that in a lecture? I mean, I see active learning as anything that takes the traditional one-way method of lecturing and turns it into a two-way 
person and there's there is a dialogue there and you can see I mean one for the lecturer they can see how well they're doing but also for students it stops them from being passive you can't just take notes anymore and it helps to break up the tone of the lecture keeps you engaged and also makes you assess yourself because if you realize I don't know what to say in this activity or I don't know what the answer is it challenges you whereas when you're normally just sat taking notes you'll think oh I'll remember this all later but you often forget more than you think you would later on. No, I, um, I, I agree with both of you on this. I, um, one of the things that I learned embarrassingly recently as a teacher is to be very clear in what I aim to achieve with whatever activities and whatever structure I put in my lectures. If I have a 10-minute monologue, I have to ask myself, what is the point of these 10 minutes? Is it transmission of information? Do I want them to be surprised? Do I want them to take notes? Do I want them to think? Do I want them to answer a question? Do I want them to think of a question? And similarly, with whatever activities I have, interactive activities or solitary activities, uh, I really have to think very hard about figuring out what the point of it is. And sometimes I also admit that some of my interactive activities are simply for the, for the purpose of building a connection between teacher and student. It doesn't have very clear fundamental educational purposes or active learning sort of purposes, but it simply humanizes the connection between the, the teacher and amongst the, the students, and I consider that to be very important also in the context of lectures, especially in the last two years with online education and hybrid education being the norm and the increased distance that you have between learners and, and teachers. How have you found the last two years, Simon? Yeah, I found, I found them quite challenging. I prefer face-to-face lectures, I must admit. I definitely think, uh, just to expand on your point, this community building, this sense of belonging, just through an activity like that, plays a really important role. And there is something missing from a, a live lecture across the internet from my office. You know, there's, there's a lack of... It takes the humanness out of it. It makes much more difficult uh, for a connection. And I think uh, that connection is, is really important for learning. Do you do hybrid teaching? Do you do mostly online teaching? What's your, given the option, and currently at the time of recording this podcast, we're still at a uh, situation where in-person teaching has to also be live streamed, which means hybrid teaching. Is that what you prefer or do you prefer fully online? I prefer hybrid uh, teaching, I must say. How that has its also has its challenges. It's, uh, I have not found joy in selecting between the two formats, the fully online and the hybrid. How do you do interaction with the hybrid format? You have essentially two groups of students, some in person, some presumably watching the live stream at home, and actually possibly a third group of students who are watching the live stream asynchronously, the recording of the live stream a few hours or a few days later. How, 
how do you build this kind of sense of social connection and um, and consistency with all of these groups? Yeah, I'm still learning, to be honest, Tassos. I hear you. Yeah, ideally, uh, I get a student who will be responsible for monitoring uh, a discussion board. Students can send the, the questions in. But that hasn't been really effective. I must say, physical, face-to-face lectures, I think I'm okay at. But when it comes to this hybrid where you've got uh, two audiences live and then you've got the asynchronous one, yeah, I'm still learning, I'm afraid. I'm not doing it to a degree that I'm satisfied with, I must say. Tally, how do you experience the, the two formats? Well, I dislike both, to be honest. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I everyone think everybody does. in this room does. <laughs> yes. The last year and a half of my degree was basically completely online. Only the minor was hybrid for me. And the whole thing just feels very condensed in my memory because it it doesn't really stick out in my mind anymore. As Simon was saying before, there's this lack of community. I didn't really feel like a university student once everything went online. I wasn't living in the same city, which added to it, but you also just don't see familiar faces. You lose that sense of commonality with people around you. It's very rare to see people put their webcams on, so that added to it, I think. But with hybrid as well, it helped, but it also forces you into potentially unsafe scenarios. So there's a lot of anxiety with that as well. There doesn't seem to be a perfect solution at the minute. So, sorry, what do you mean by unsafe scenarios, Sally? Oh, catching corona. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) Because often my exams would be in person, but the whole course would be online. Okay. So suddenly you're in a room with 100 people and you haven't had to do that in a while, so it's stressful when Mm. you're trying to do an exam. Mm. I think it's fair to say that what we're all wishing for is a return to pre-corona times. I think there is no doubt that most of the behaviors that, or most of the choices that we're making right now are some unconscious or very conscious wish to be back to situations that were unencumbered by uh, the circumstances of a pandemic. I, I find the hybrid format extremely difficult, personally, partly because I really dislike the idea or let me put it differently. I think one of the greatest aims of of contact time with um, in higher education is to provide structure. And it's extremely difficult to provide structure when, first of all, it's unclear whether somebody will be there in person or will watch in a live stream. Uh, the possibility to interact with both groups effectively and equitably is, um, th- there are some, but they're limited and they're difficult. And they need a lot of exploring. And this is a time where not just students are facing a lot of challenges, but teachers and in their personal lives and their professional lives. And these puts additional demands and it demands a lot of additional exploration and imagination, which a lot of us just don't have. Let's be realistic on that, too, no matter how much we would like to. And I appreciate the fact that you say, Sally, that it's also um, it, it puts people in a in a circumstance where they may not necessarily feel comfortable or they have to choose between two uncomfortable positions, one being their own personal safety from from a pandemic, but the other one, the 
the wish for connectedness and to have structure and to be able to leave their living environment and to attend a class, physically attend the class. I'm currently, I'm, I'm a week away or a week and a half away from starting my, my course and I admit I still haven't made the decision whether to teach hybrid or fully online and um, I see both of them as being imperfect choices and I just have to figure out which one is less imperfect or which one fits my aims a little bit better or my conceptualization a little bit better. But Simon, I agree, it's um, neither is very good. Regardless, however, of whether a lecture is in person or online, do you have preparation routines? Do you have uh, rituals that you go through before you start speaking in front of a large crowd? Not really. I must say, I always prepare notes, and I never, ever use those notes in a lecture. Well, that seems like a ritual. It. Well, it is a ritual, but it's totally superfluous to the quality of the lectures. Do you prepare notes for a lecture that you've delivered in the past? Do you prepare them anew? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you don't prepare lecture um, notes that you rely on year after year. You prepare them anew every time. Anew every year and uh, introduce new topics into the established lecture, new studies to keep it contemporary. Do you know of other people's rituals, preparation rituals? I don't know. Interesting. I've, I've often found it uh, surprising, and again, whenever I talk about teaching as a craft or as a, as a professional activity, I always liken it to some extent to professional athletes and it would be strange to imagine putting um, uh, Usain Bolt in a stadium and without a warm-up without some kind of mental preparation ask them to 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 perform and um, I think of lectures and any kind of teaching for that matter as well as you know conference presentations and all kinds of other routine matters as similar yeah, do you have any rituals um, it's, they're not necessarily rituals, but I always reserve at least half an hour before every lecture to put myself in a particularly gregarious or garrulous mood or a mood that is open and easy and, and um, it, to a certain extent, happy and uh, engaged and sociable. I like being able to speak in front of a crowd and be in a good mood, to be in a position where I see... 100, 300, 700, however many people there are, and uh, to think of them as as a group that I can connect with. And I often listen to podcasts that are of a either humorous nature or a conversational nature just to sort of limber up that conversational muscle. I often go for a walk, that sort of thing. I don't do voice exercises, <laughs> if um, that's what you're thinking. I do know people who do voice exercises. I do know people who listen to a particular kind of music before going to a lecture. I know people who their their pre-lecture ritual is to be very engaged with the material that they're teaching, to revisit articles or books, to remind themselves of very salient points. I know people who listen to their own lectures from previous years to see what worked and also what didn't work. And on this, maybe I have another question. Do you have any post-lecture rituals? Well, I always uh, reflect on how that went, maybe write some notes on that for, for the next year that I may review. I'm never really happy 
<laughs> Isn't that, uh, is that the, the North Englishman? Yeah, here? exactly. Yeah. It, uh, I, I always think it could have been better. I find it very difficult to look at uh, and listen to uh, uh, videos. It's a great learning tool, but it can be quite quite painful. But I think it's kind of healthy to have a cr- more of a critical viewpoint and because you always want to improve and do better. Does it get any easier the longer you've been teaching? Not really. No. I, it's uh, it's usually I start thinking about the lecture the week before, and I, and I'll prepare because I'm always concerned. Okay, can I get? Is there enough stuff? Do, do I have enough time to do these things? How can I connect with the students? How can I uh, get the students to enjoy this experience? That type of thing. So I'm kind of a uh, I'm very pessimistic. <laughs> it Is definitely gets British. easier. Yeah. It definitely gets easier. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think uh, Simon would also concede that point if if pushed even a little bit. I think. Um, the first few years of teaching are very, very demanding, both because you're learning, but also because personally, it's it's very, it's very easy to become anxious about speaking in front of a very large crowd of people who uh, have high expectations, understandably high expectations of good quality teaching. And as you go through it, you learn what works with a particular audience and what doesn't work. And of course, it's Surprises still remain, but um, I would say that the surprises today are fewer than the surprises from 10 years ago. And certainly the the amount of preparation that I need today is high, but not as high as it was 10 years ago. And the same for the amount of anxiety, I would say. Yeah, I agree up to a point. I mean, what we've talked about today in terms of what a lecture is, the traditional lecture compared to the modern interactive or active lecture or the ideal and that's occurred in my own development as a lecturer. When I first started, it was uh, more of a monologue. And maybe as I got more confident with the material, more confident, I begin I began to give ownership to the lecture, more and more ownership to students to activate them more and activate myself less. How do you feel about attendance? I know we, in our programs, we typically, uh, certainly in the psychology program, but not all programs in the in the faculty, we don't have mandatory attendance. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because this year has been the first year where I've seen a, a significant reduction in attendance from students. In the hybrid format, you yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's a little bit demoralising because a lot the more students are there, there's a more community atmosphere and, you know, I can get to know the students a bit better, engage with them a bit better. And when there's... There's not that many there. It's a little bit disappointing. But that's from my perspective. You know, I'd rather have an audience there to perform. From a student's perspective, if I can understand for them, they may, they'll get some benefit from the lecture viewing it online. But it's better if they, they attend, they'll benefit even more. Yeah, I really didn't like having classes online, actually, because most things are recorded. You have no real motivation to be present in the live lecture whilst it's happening. You're less engaged with the community and the teaching and everything. So it's kind of automatically pushed down your priority list than compared to what it was before when you had to physically 
be in attendance. Um, and then you're like, well, I could do it now, but I also have other stuff to do. I'll just do it when I have free time. And at that point, you're less engaged because you can just pause it and wander off and do mm. something whenever. You're not watching it at the same time as your peers, so you don't have their input. And it just kind of compounds the effect of not feeling like you're actually following a course anymore. You can just access it whenever, but that makes it kind of trivial. Are we all saying that we don't want lectures recorded? Is this what I'm hearing from everyone? No, I, I think lectures should definitely be recorded. I think uh, it's a, but they should be seen to supplement the live lecture. But how how do we do that? We've just heard the account that if it's not a supplement to the live lecture but a replacement to the live lecture, then is the recording a good thing? Do you know, I'd, I'm struggling with that question. I've been struggling with that question for this semester because, as I've said, the lack of attendance has, has given me a lot to think about. Some colleagues hold back the recordings till one or two weeks before the exam. I can understand that point of view, but I also think recordings are a really excellent learning tool where students can go over the lecture that they didn't understand, and I'd like to give them that opportunity as soon as possible. I've been recording lectures for the last five or six years without a real drop in attendance. But this year there has been, so there could be a COVID factor. I don't know, but, you know, I'm for recording of lectures for sure. Uh, I mirror this experience in, um, in very close terms. I've been recording lectures for many, many years also, and um, I don't see a substantial drop in attendance because of the recordings. It certainly interacts with other basic things, such as when the lecture is, if it's a winter semester, if it's at 9 a.m. or if it's at 1 in the afternoon, if it's at Zernike, if it's, if it's closer to the center. It does interact with a lot of material like this. I don't think there's a specific answer. I think it's difficult to even conceive not having recordings uh, today because I know that a lot of students are unable to be there in person or at a particular time. It's a limitation that it seems that we have to, to live with, and it's not ideal. And as I said, I think we're all wishing to be returning back to a more normal pre-pandemic type of scenario. And um, I'm not entirely sure when that will be happening in higher education. But uh, returning to the question, will you make your lecture record? Do you believe lecture recording should be made available to students immediately after? Or do you think... It should be delayed. I think with a lot of these questions, there is absolutely an, uh, a no answer that fits all circumstances. Every year I make slightly different decisions, again, based on what time the lecture is, what I'm trying to achieve. This year, as much as I would like to not have recordings or to postpone the delivery of the recordings, I know that this is this is going to impose unnecessary constraints to enough students that I'm unwilling to do it just for the drop of attendance. So I'm picking the best circumstance at any given occasion. It depends on the size of the classroom. It depends on what kind of environment I can offer. It depends on my assessment. In the course that I'm starting next week, I have weekly assessment. Mm -hmm. I can't postpone the recordings by three weeks because then that's two yeah. weeks too late. So I can't really make the same decisions for that. If I had a 
an end of semester exam, I would consider seriously putting the recordings at a slightly different time. Again, because I value, I think it's useful to build a weekly structure for learning. And I think you can do it differently. I have different ways in which I build structure in my courses and it reinforces attendance. It doesn't guarantee it by any means, but at least it reinforces attendance. And this is partly why I'm also considering, or I'm also not very happy with a hybrid model because, again, it adds to this inconsistency of structure. Yeah. So I think there are a lot of ways to consider this matter and a lot of different combinations of solutions that one could have. I'm not, I'm not adherent to a particular set of solutions. Okay. Sally, what's your perspective on when you should make recordings of like, well, whether you should record lectures and when you should make them available? I think they're necessary at the minute, but I think they should be at least slightly delayed because, yeah, that puts more pressure on you to attend the actual live lecture, either online or in person. And like Tassos was saying, there's other ways to make people avoid just watching the recording later on. For example, like quizzes or something like that, where you kind of have to keep up with the literature or the the live lectures um, week by week. And then that's an additional motivator not to immediately just go to watching the recordings instead of the live version, especially if it's released a week after the original lecture, because then you're just falling forever and forever behind. Mm. I guess if you go back to what we started with at the beginning of the podcast, when we talked about the traditional lecture, which is um, a monologue stream of information that ties perhaps to some literature, a book, an article, a combination of the two. And then at some distant point in the future, there is an assessment point, an exam perhaps, or an assignment. Then already it seems that the question shouldn't be, should I have a recording or not? But is this the right structure to be having a course in the first place? Because automatically you're making it so that one needn't or doesn't really benefit greatly from being there in person in the synchronous uh, delivery of the lecture. Uh, and then having structures as the ones that Sally mentions with weekly activities, be they quizzes or something else, that clearly match the learning objectives of the course and clearly match the learning objectives of the lecture and clearly tie in to that, then perhaps already you've put yourself a, a foot ahead of the game and um, then the matter of do I have recordings or not becomes slightly less important. I'd like to think so anyway. Is the lecture dead? No, definitely not. It serves an important function, as we've talked about today, but it should be part of a a series of uh, uh, methods that a, a lecturer can use to teach, such as the perfect course, I should imagine, would be some lectures, small group teaching, depending upon what the purpose is. And the lecture addresses some purposes, but not all. What's your view? I, I think you, you stated it very well. I agree. I think the lecture is here to stay. 
I think the lecture can be updated or the lecture can be improved. And I think the conversation ought to shift well away from whether a lecture is a good thing or whether lectures should disappear or whether lectures um, are the right kind of format. And I think we should start focusing on good pedagogy and good teaching, uh, understanding what the how objectives link to methodologies, figuring out what these learning objectives are in the first place. I think that's a good place to start. And we still have a lot of room to improve on that. And I think the lectures um, has been so successful for so many years because it is a really good tool for providing structure. It's a really good tool for providing information and with the right kind of updates. And we have technology and we have better knowledge of pedagogy these days to allow us to improve the structure of lectures to meet these demands for more engaged learning, for better interaction between students amongst themselves, between students and the learning material, and between students and teachers. Yeah, I don't think the lecture is dead either. In fact, some of my fondest memories of my degree were of lectures I really enjoyed attending. I think it's just the purest way to get input from an expert in their field uh, without distraction. And I, I really appreciated it during uh, my studies. And I would be very sad to uh, see them gone. Yeah, I'd like to explore this idea of um, the expert speaker a little bit more in a future episode, because I think this is also at the crux of this. I think there is more demand or more request or more interest in a, in a larger plurality of voices and more engagement and uh, more equity in opinions. But at the same time, we are dealing with uh, experts in the field who have years of experience and a lot of knowledge that can be imparted, and lectures do this extremely well. Yeah, I think also we've talked about predominant from the lecture perspective, and Sally, you've gave some important student perspective. But I also think we could when we talk about updating the lecture, is updating the skills of the students to participate in a lecture. So, you know, what is good note-taking? What can they do to take advantage of the lecture, to best take advantage, you know, reviewing the notes immediately after the lecture? That type of thing. So it's updating the lectures, skills of the lecturer, but also preparing the students to be an interactive participant in the, in the lecture. Yeah, I agree. I mean, for me, it was the first experience of lectures was university. And I had to learn as I went along how I learn best and which type of note-taking works best for me. For example, I've realized very quickly that taking notes on my computer just didn't work for me at all. It just kind of left my brain immediately afterwards. But if I wrote it down on pen and paper, for some reason, that muscle memory helped it stay in my brain for longer. That's just one example of something that could be useful to inform students of beforehand. Yeah, I think it's also important to emphasize there are a lot of important transferable skills if you if a student approaches the lecture in the correct manner, such as you know, the importance of focused listening for mm -hmm. a prolonged period of time you know, and critical listening and paraphrasing those notes and most importantly being able to review them as quickly as possible after the lecture. Those are really important skills I think that we could do better. 
Okay, so then let's close this podcast with two very quick questions for the both of you. First one, best advice that you can give to a student for following lectures that will improve their experience with the least amount of effort? What's the easiest thing that they can do to improve their experience in a lecture? Simon? Do the reading beforehand. <laughs> Sorry. And also review your notes. Take good notes and review them as quickly as possible after the lecture. Sally? Yeah, I think just paying attention to how you learn best and um, what helps you to remember things in a lecture and acting accordingly to that. Same question, but for teachers, what's the easiest thing that they can do to improve their lecturing game? Use the backward design principle. Start off from explicit learning objectives and use those to structure your lecture. Sally, what's, I, I suppose asking for advice isn't perhaps the, the best way to phrase this, but what's your, what's your biggest request or what's been your most um, liked type of lecture? What would you advise more lecturers to do? I think breaking up the tone throughout with maybe a small discussion or incorporating technology into your lecture, tools such as Mentimeter, anything that gets people more engaged. It doesn't have to be the whole lecture like that, but I think it's important to put those things in to keep people awake and actually engaging with the material because it can be difficult to listen to so much information for an hour 45 without zoning out. So I think it is necessary to put the more active elements in there. Good advice. I hope, uh, hope our audience finds it useful. I hope our audience finds ways to apply it. Simon, thank you for being with us uh, in this episode. I had a really good time talking with you and it's been yeah, thank um, you, Simon. very interesting to consider some of the, um, the ways in which we agree or perhaps even more interesting to find some ways in which we don't quite agree on this. Um, I know that uh, I'm a better lecturer for it. I agree. I, I, you gave me a lot to reflect upon and uh, thanks for that, Tassos. Sally, always good to get a student perspective, so thanks for your uh, Corgan commentary. <laughs> Thank you. This podcast was a production of the University of Groningen.